Welcome to the 2041 Project, The Future Now, a podcast exploring the precipice upon which our nation stands and mapping out the route we traveled to get here. I'm Nadej Moon. The 2041 Project is a podcast of the Green New World Broadcasting Collective. In accordance with the Digital Media Authenticity Act of 2038, this podcast is being recorded on February 21st, 2041, and the provenance token is... Thanks for listening. Calvin Watkins has traveled longer and farther than any man in history, though he slept for much of it. NASA's 18-year Outer Passage mission gave him a grand tour of the outer solar system and also brought him back to an Earth totally transformed from the planet he left in 2022. While physically he is only four years older, 18 years have passed on Earth. A living throughline, Calvin tells us about his journey, the loss of fellow astronaut Tan Lu in 2031, and about the culture shock of returning to an Earth and a country forever changed. There was a show I loved as a kid about humans settling a far solar system with many worlds. They had traveled a long way through deep space from what they called Earth that was. And so fear of that vast emptiness they had to travel through was embedded in their culture. I remember a scene where two of the characters were hanging on to the outside of their spaceship, and one of them was looking out and wonder at the blackness. And the other kept his gaze locked on the ship and held on for dear life. I knew at that moment which character I was. I looked out into space and never looked back. I've seen the black, touched it, and now understand the other astronaut clinging to the tiny thing that can support us. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. I feel so fortunate that you're setting aside time for me and this modest podcast, when I'm sure there are many big names that are asking you to be on their shows. Oh, it's an honor to be with you. Your podcast is all over the Sanctuary Networks, and I feel like everyone in Bear's ears is listening. Your first episode on the 38, that was just stunning. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think your podcast can actually make a real impact on how we understand this moment. So keep at it. Thank you. That's so wonderful to hear. Now I have to live up to all that expectation. <laughs> okay, so here goes. People who return from long travels or wars or space flights talk about how overwhelming it is to process everything. Even terrestrial journeys place you on a slightly different timeline than the folks back home. You've experienced things unique from those you left behind, which changes you, but also makes you a bit of a foreigner in the home you left behind, since that place marches forth with its own timeline, with or without you. Your journey certainly muddled your relationship to home's timeline more than anyone ever has. What was it like to come home from the farthest journey of all time? We used to call that culture shock. And it's not just soldiers and astronauts. As far as I can tell, it's a fundamental part of the human experience. We leave home, we return to find it transformed. Or we don't leave, and time simply moves past us. I think it's in the architecture of our brains. Think about how babies learn object permanence, right? When they play peekaboo, now you see it, now you don't. It exists, it doesn't exist. Eventually we learn that it still exists, even when we don't see it. Except that's an illusion. The face revealed is not the same face that hit. Not exactly, right? It's aged a bit. 
Some of its cells have died and been replaced. Time changes everything. Isn't all human endeavor based on the idea, or fallacy, of object permanence? We would never build a house today if we knew it would get blown down by the wolf tomorrow. We hold on to things that can't last forever. It makes me think of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's really the story of a man losing his best friend and rebelling against that reality. Or the Odyssey, about returning home and finding it suddenly as foreign as the strange places you journeyed to. Yes, exactly. I'm living both of those stories. I've returned to a future we wouldn't even have dared to imagine in 2022. And I struggle mightily and daily with losing my best friend. But I try to keep in mind that we're all on our own personal odysseys. We don't have to fly to Kuiper Belt and back to claim that story. Everyone I left behind has been through life-changing experiences and had their public and private worlds upended overnight, many times I'm sure your world has been turned over, torn apart, even though you're so young. Am I right? Honestly, I couldn't say. Everyone in my generation, well, our baseline normal has been constant change and adaptation. And to be honest, constant losses. I don't really know anything other than change and loss. I guess you'd think I'd be used to it by now, but I think all humans are pretty hardwired to seek stability. Even though the ground isn't shaking so much right now, my legs still feel wobbly. Mine too, because I haven't experienced Earth gravity for so long. We're all learning to walk straight and tall again, right? So I feel like our journeys are relatable even though each one is unique. Mine might be a little more jarring because of the Rand Wrinkle aspect. Out. The tagline of this podcast keeps flashing in my brain. The future now. That's basically your life now, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's draw drop. The Argo woke you for the last time four days before the ship entered Earth orbit. What was it like seeing Earth through the porthole for the first time? You ever hear that Roberta Flack song, the first time I ever saw your face? No. Yes? Maybe. I'm sure I've heard it. Oh, you have to listen to it. She's singing her soul out about this ground chicken kind of love. You know the lyrics. First I ever saw your face, I thought the sun rose in your eyes, and the moon and the stars were the gift you gave to the dark in the skies. I didn't expect to be discussing Roberta Flack lyrics when we started this interview. So far, I found that nobody's really expected the guy who came back from the outer passage. Anyway, when I woke up and went to the observation pod, the bastards at Mission Control played that. I guess they once played it for the Apollo 17 astronauts. But man, I cried. Earth. I could feel the warmth of it through the glass. I cut the calm and just hung there over my world and fell in love again. Such an experience. I knew the broad outlines of what had happened while I was away. But it wasn't until I saw Earth again that I could really feel those things. I got hit with all that. Two decades of suffering and struggle. I cried until my tears floated around me like stars. Later, when I transferred to anabasis for my return to the surface, I had more time. I spent hours looking at the Earth and cataloging the changes. What were some of the changes that really struck you? The Sahara Desert was so much bigger. In the desertification of southern Spain, Italy really popped out. And to a sharp eye of the outlines of continents, we're a little off. There's a bay where Bangladesh used to be, for example. 
The sea walls are visible from space and the fires flickering at night and billowing by day. The thing that really took my breath away was the Greenland really is green again. Tan and I trained on the ice sheet there before Outer Passage. We were standing on a sheet of ice a mile thick just two decades ago. Now it's gone. It's so strange for me to think of all those things as being changes. I mean, I think it's absolutely true that we as humans cling to things that can never last. But on the flip side of that, it amazes me how quickly we accept things and try to move on. All of the changes you're talking about have happened within my lifetime, and they already feel somewhat like terminal truths. Maybe that's how things got as bad as they did, you know? We were all like frogs in boiling water, (laughs) almost literally. We lost a few miles of coastline here, a few species there, a few forests, a few hundred thousand human lives at a time. And if it all happens slowly enough, somehow people can still convince themselves that it's normal. Your perspective must have made all of that a lot to take in before you even landed. What has the most striking change been on Earth? The first thing that struck me was that there's a gentleness to how people speak to one another. It feels very new and different to me. In the 2020s, there was so much anger and anxiety, but it feels like as a nation, we've turned the corner or we're in the process of turning it at least. In terms of our imagination and our sense of belonging, we're adapting, coming together as a large community and as a whole and as citizens and stewards of the planet. I'm sad for what the world has gone through in the last two decades, but it is also thrilling to see where we're at right now. The internal landscape of people feels as different as the face of Earth looks from space. You left Earth at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement in the early 2020s. The country has confronted a lot of its racist past since then, even though there's still so much work to be done. I wondered, does it feel any different to be a black man in America today? What are the most striking changes in this regard? Well, that's where I'm more skeptical. Black people in America have centuries of experience telling them not to celebrate anything too quickly. But I never in my life thought we'd see reparations talked about seriously. It's really promising that there's a moratorium on the death penalty, and that they're thinking of specifically outlawing it in the new constitution. That's been a tool of oppression for centuries. And the first time I encountered a cop, it was in Austin. And I stumbled getting up on the curb. I lost a lot of muscle mass and space, and so I was literally relearning how to walk. And a cop came over to ask me if I was okay. I don't think he recognized me, but he was polite. And now I notice he didn't even have a gun. I think one of the most powerful things I've heard is when Etta Marin said that a green future also has to be a black future and an indigenous future. Yes, I remember that too, when they signed the peace accords. Let's hope together that white people don't pull the rug out from under it all. Outer Passage lasted 18 years, but the crew hibernated through almost all of it spending only about four years total out of hibernation. So now you're physically, what, 35 years old? Even though by the calendar you're 50. What's it like to be a real life Rip Van Winkle? The Argos crew had was shielded by these massive water tanks. But we still experience a lot more gamma radiation than most humans ever do. People still age in hibernation. It's just slowed down. 
Physiologists tell me that they think I've aged about eight years. So I have the body of someone who's 40, even though calendar-wise, I'm 50. What's really weird is that they compared my genome now to the sequencing they did before I departed. And the changes are astounding. It's an old sci-fi trope that the astronaut returns as something maybe not human. But in some fundamental ways, I'm not the person who first stepped into the capsule two decades ago. Part of that was intentional though, right? I read that to prepare humans for hibernation, they ran you through a series of gene therapies in which sequences from the grizzly bear genome connected to hibernation are introduced. What's it like to be part bear? Well, that was the most popular question before we launched. Every news conference. But there's nothing that I could point to. The sequences they introduced were very small and required some strong chemicals to activate. But that's one thing NASA and I are still trying to figure out. During my last hibernation, a seven-year sleep, I dreamed. It's not supposed to happen. There's no REM sleep during what we call introduced, regulated hibernation. So dreaming shouldn't happen. But somehow it did. They did record slightly higher brain activity, but it's still quite mysterious. What did you dream about? You wouldn't believe it, but salmon. No, not really. I'm not really ready to talk about it, to be honest. It was a whole journey within a journey. The most coherent and real feeling dream I've pretty much ever experienced. I'm still working through it, but I'll talk about it sometime. Fair enough. Maybe you'll come back on our podcast to talk about it then? Almost oh, definitely. I would enjoy that. What was it like hibernating for these long periods and then suddenly getting updated to everything that was happening on Earth? NASA called them Earth Situation Reports. Tom called them the While You Were Sleeping Sessions, which I think needs to be an album name. They were really carefully put together. I recently spoke with one of the briefing authors and she told me how much they agonize over what to tell us and what to keep us from. She said they tried to find hope in everything and that the process of doing that was really important to them too. They were living these things. Thinking about how to tell us helped them keep their heads, she said. For us, it was very hard. Waking up was traumatic. I followed Earth's events more closely than Tan did. She kept up with her family more and that's the lens through which she saw the changes back home. A lot changed in Vietnam, and a lot changed in the U.S. For a few years there, I thought the United States was finished. At the height of the Civil War, those was hard times. I felt so powerless, like my head was strapped in, and I was being forced to watch a slow-motion train wreck, watching each car pull the next off the cliff. What was the first car you remember watching fly off the cliff? Well, we woke up once and found out that Congress had been blown up. That was a shock. Um, but let me turn this question around because I wasn't here and you were. When did you become aware of the crisis the country was going through? I think it wasn't until the famine hit, when I was nine. My memory pretty much starts on the self-sustaining farm my dad built to keep us alive through the famine. I didn't fully understand what was happening at the time, but our food supply got raided twice. The first time was right at the end of our first year on the farm and caught us totally unprepared. A bunch of armed men came to the farm in the middle of the night and seized our supply. My dad had never farmed before, so we'd barely been scraping by up to that point and hadn't been able to store up hardly anything. 
He never would have told me at the time, but he recently told me that he almost died from starvation because he was giving almost everything we had to me. Even though I was getting almost all of it, I, I can still remember how hungry I was. I think that hunger was what started to tip me off that my little world with my father wasn't a perfect one. The second time people tried to raid our supply, it was a group of desperate and starving refugees. By then, we were a lot more organized with the little community forming around us and had reached a point where we'd had just enough to share. We gave them everything we could, but we made sure to protect our own resources for ourselves. How about your family? Even though you were far away, you had family and friends here. What were some of the events on Earth that hit home for both of you? Tan and I were both chosen from the astronaut corps, in part because we had no spouses or children, but we both had families. I left my parents and a brother. Tan had five brothers and sisters, parents, grandparents, nieces and nephews, a whole extended name. The East Asian War was really traumatic for Tan. She lost two brothers and her mother when the Chinese firebomb Hanoi. I lost my dad in the Galveston flood in 2026, and my mom in the famine of 2029. I honor your losses. What happened to your brother? I don't know where he is or if he's alive or dead. He was with my mom in Tulsa, but there's no record of him dying in the famine. The Midwest was such a mess at that time. An aunt told me that she remembers him showing a real interest in new guidance. So I've been working with the Sanctuary Network to track him down. I hope he's found peace. I'd like to talk to him though. I'd like to hear about his journey. I think if he was alive, he'd get in touch though. That must be very hard. Thank you. It was harder for Tom. No, she was more connected with her family than I was. She would meet every new baby, grieve every loss that occurred while we were in hibernation, add pictures to her family altar in her quarters. Her grandmother was alive to her. I didn't have that. I said goodbye to everyone in 2024 not expecting to come back. My ancestors are strangers to me. One of the things I learned coming back is that ancestor altars have become commonplace in many American homes. I set up a little one in my quarters, you know, but communicating with my family was never easy. Even when they were alive and we worked together, the farther I traveled, the farther the emotional distance felt. Of course, one can't put those things off forever. Now I have a lot of emotional work to do, and some of it is with people who are gone and can't respond, except in my head. You've spoken often of the hopefulness you sensed growing back on Earth. Was there a specific moment when you had a distinct realization that Earth had turned a corner on climate change? Yes. We were awake for the signing of the Anderson Mob Pact. Watching all those countries come together in common purpose, that was something to see. The US wasn't there, that was hard. But at least the rest of the world was getting it together. I'm grateful Tan got to see that. We started to imagine a better world at that point. Tan would talk about her hopes for Vietnam, the life she wanted to lead when she returned, the food she wanted to eat. We had been given permission to feel optimistic again. She died soon after that? Yes. At least we laughed together before it happened. I'm grateful for that. I'm wondering if we might honor her loss by talking about how she died and about her funeral. Sure. 
Tan died suddenly and unexpectedly. We were in orbit around Eris, and one of our probes came back from the surface, but couldn't dock because the communications array would not retract. We went to EVA to fix it. Our life support was tethered to the Argo, so we had plenty of time, and so we spent a few minutes just looking out as we floated. We watched the sun, so dim out there, pass behind the planetesimal, and once it appeared, we turned to do our work on the probe. I wasn't facing her when the micrometeorite hit her helmet and killed her instantly. I asked her if she was ready to grab hold of the probe, and she didn't answer. And I turned and could see the blood on her face shield. The thermoplastic of the helmet sealed at the point of impact, like it was designed to do, so her suit didn't depressurize. If she had been hit in the leg, she would have lived. What was the process of her funeral like? Long before Tan and I were selected for this mission, we all had to write a last will and testament to be referenced in the event of our death in space. But obviously for this mission, repatriation of a whole body to Earth would be nearly impossible. NASA's solution was a process that pretty much essentially freeze-dries the body by holding it in a body bag outside of the spacecraft on an arm that shakes it so it can be broken down to small pieces. Tom wanted her family to be present at her funeral. They were able to join over the comm before I prepared her body and conducted a proper funeral again when her remains were returned to them when I got back. After she passed away, you were suddenly alone. What was that experience like and what did you do to cope with that isolation? A brain does funny things to survive. Mission Control noticed that after Tan's death, I still wrote we in my mission box. It wasn't a conscious decision or an effect. I didn't feel alone. I kept talking to Tan like she would talk to her grandmother. You know, the human brain is magnificent at constructing behavioral models of the people we know. And I knew Tan better than I've known anyone in my life. She was no longer physically there, but I kept Tan the person present in my mind. It might sound strange, but I placed her urn in the kitchen alongside a photo of her as a sort of version of the altar her family created in her honor on Earth. We had our best conversations in the galley, so it made sense for us to be able to keep spending time together. Even on a spaceship, the best conversations happen in the kitchen? I suspect that there's a thing as old as humanity. At the center, they experienced the kitchen area because the residents were always congregating there anyway. Oh, right. Can you tell us where you are now and what you're doing? Sure. I spent the last few months as a guest of the Bears Ears New Guy Sanctuary. And that's been an incredibly helpful experience. Good medicine, as they say. When I first got back, NASA had basically scheduled the rest of my life in debriefings and physical exams. And I didn't want that. I wanted to open up Outer Passage. My experience belongs to everyone. It's what I owe to everyone else, and I have to give them real credit. NASA has really let me lead the way. So I'm a resident at the Sanctuary's Dark Canyon Center for Synthesis. It's a remarkable place with remarkable people, great minds and hearts. They started helping me piece my experience together. I've been able to meet philosophers and historians, geoengineers and synthetic biologists, 
I've spent a lot of time with new guys, elders, and leaders from the stewardess churches. The Tibetan Buddhist delegate to the sanctuary, Yingso, hardly ever leaves my side. Even though I'm surrounded by these great religious leaders, I'm still not religious at all. I know that what I've experienced belongs to them too, and I'm eager to get their take on it. I have a ways to go. I want to communicate what we learned from Outer Passage because there is so much and it's so important. It's been a century since Yuri Gagarin's historic flight aboard Vostok 1, the first human in space. Looking back at how significantly human spaceflight has evolved in those hundred years, what do you think the next hundred years holds for space exploration? We'll spread out into the solar system and then beyond. The first Chinese colonists are on their way to Mars now. There are manned missions planned to Ceres and Jupiter, and the population of Lunar City just surpassed 5,000 people. We're at the dawn of a new era. Lunar City's declaration of independence from Earth is a big deal. There are people born on the moon. They're human, but not Earthlings, and they have their own path to follow. Maybe they will avoid some of the mistakes we have made on Earth. Maybe they will make new ones. I think the specter of colonialism is real and it hangs over every decision we will make as we push out into the solar system and beyond. But the human story continues. So what comes next for you, do you think? You're still young. I really want to be part of building this new society Right now, I'm working with the Public Service Corps to create support services for young people who experience a lot of trauma. Everything I experience on Outer Passage, I'm still not a spiritual person. I don't believe in God or Gaia, but I do believe in the power of people. And I do believe that Earth is precious. Because I've been to the edge of the solar system, and I can tell you, it certainly is rare. You've been listening to The 2041 Project. This week's episode wouldn't have been possible without the efforts of Green New World Broadcasting Collective members Dion DeShields, Emma Sarnacki, Doug Riley, Andres Ballin's Audio Art 4 and Studio Assistant 1 classes, and the A.J. Reed Science Discovery Center of SUNY Oneonta. Hang together or hang separately, everyone.